Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, December 20th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with political correspondent Tal Schneider and legal affairs reporter Jeremy Sharon. Hello, good morning to you both. Hi, Jessica. Good morning, Jessica. Hi there. It is day 75 of the war. The ground operations toll of soldiers killed in Gaza is up to 133, with the death of Reserve Captain Lior Sivan in battles against Hamas last night. On Tuesday evening, Islamic Jihad issued a propaganda clip of hostages Gadi Moses and Elad Katsir, from, both from kibbutz near Oz. The two of them in the video were calling on Israel to secure their release, warning that they can hear the IDF strikes. Uh, families have asked that those videos not be shown. We've written about it and reported on it. We will talk today about tunnel warfare in Gaza and what the IDF's reports regarding their findings reveal about the war's progress in Gaza. There's also the matter of Palestinian Authority funds being transferred to Gaza and a report from the state comptroller about civilian issues during the war during those first weeks. Finally, we will also look at the lack of adequate communication between soldiers embedded in Gaza and their worried families during this ongoing war. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Tal, let's start with you. You spoke with Yehuda Kfir for Zman Yisrael, our sister site, and Yehuda Kfir is an expert in underground warfare and a reserve brigadier general. He said a lot of different things in the interview, including that as much as the army is uncovering the tunnels in Gaza, it's not enough. And as you quoted him, we need to dig from our side to theirs. So, Dig into that a little bit and tell us what that means. In other words, that we're hearing about the tunnels, but the fact that we're hearing about them doesn't mean that enough progress is being made. What does that actually mean? The interview is in English and, and is on the Times of Israel, and it has lots of insights about the um, underground or, 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 or tunnel warfare. This is a total field of military research, but... What we've seen this week from the publication of those videos uh, and a lot of information about this huge tunnel that was built um, very close to Erez crossing, um, almost uh, 200, um, I think 200 feet from, from the fence. It's a lot of information that came from those videos. In one of those videos, we can see Mahmoud uh, Sinwar, the brother of Yihya Sinwar, the leader of the Hamas, 
while he is driving with his car inside the tunnel. So as you said, I spoke to Yuda Kfir, who is a civil engineer but has a military background, and he pointed to to several, you know, um, things that he saw from those videos on the way they built the tunnel and and from what the military found in the tunnel that can teach us a lot about how the Hamas progressed through the years. The last time we had, you know, footage that we can analyze tunnels was in 2014. So what he said, he said, you know, we are learning from from the materials, for example, that money is not an issue. Hamas had tons of money. They used heavy steel uh, as opposed to just cement, which is very expensive and, and, and complicated to carry inside, which means, you know, huge operations of import of materials. They also used, you know, the communication system is very, very developed in the tunnels. That means also engineering and, and planning. The most interesting point he made was with respect to, as you said, the uh, underground um, warfare. How do you how do you deal with that? Now, Israel has been dealing with it for many years, but apparently now we need to step up the game. We need to, that's what he said, we need to you know, build tunnels of our own and, and make sure that we are entering into Gaza in a different direction than we thought from, from the top of the, of, the, of the ground. Because only that way, I mean, according to him, right now Israel has, um, it doesn't have enough in- intelligence as per the location of the enemy and the amount of the enemy um, terrorists. We, we, we still, up until now, we can't really tell what's going on. Another, another point that he made, he said that if this is the tunnel that is in the northern part of Gaza, it means that in the southern part of Gaza, the tunnels are much more sophisticated and and large than what we just seen. So this is just a glimpse. So again, I recommend reading the interview and looking into those videos, which tell us a lot about the uh, sophistication. For for example, just another to make another point. So he said that the so-called development unit of the Hamas came up with new machinery, the machinery that is unknown to the world in the in the process of of so, so they adjusted. I mean, they created their own, we call it in Hebrew MOP, you know, uh, research and development. They created their own new types of machinery to build those, you know, round, very carefully crafted and architectured um, tunnels. The tunnels have um, several layers. They have what we call like a building, you know, first floor, second floor, gateways and and piers and, um, you know, it's 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 a complete whole world of technology and knowledge that the Hamas achieved with using lots of finance in order to do it. Okay, and as Tom mentioned, we'll have a link to the translated article in the podcast. So take a look for that. Okay, Jeremy, turning to you. You were covering the weekly faction meeting a far-right religious Zionist party where leader Batsela Smotrich brought up the issue that had been mentioned on TV Channel 12 of Israel transferring the Palestinian Authority funds to Gaza. And he basically said, if that happens, I'm out. He's bringing it up in the faction party. What does that actually mean in terms of the politics of the government and of the actual transfer of the funds? 
So I think we're seeing a couple of incidents this week where Batal Smotrich, the head of this, uh, as you say, far-right religious Zionism party, is really asserting himself politically in the knowledge that Netanyahu is A, politically weak, and B, in the knowledge that he's able, that Smotrich himself is able to advance policies that he um, has a long-standing interest in, in promoting. So one of these issues is the Israel collects taxes from the Palestinian economy uh, and transfers them to the Palestinian Authority, uh, which runs uh, the Palestinian population centres in the West Bank. And and, that, and those taxes are obviously a massive part of the uh, government's, uh, the Palestinian government's income. The last transfer was due at the end of October, but this has been frozen because Smotrich and other people in the cabinet oppose sending this tax money to Gaza and to the families of terrorists who the Palestinian Authority pays a salary every month. Firstly, the Palestinian Authority, even though it doesn't rule Gaza anymore, it still sends money to pay for the salaries of civil servants in Gaza and to pay for things like electricity and uh, water and other um, services and and requirements in the territory. And it also, as I said, uh, a a Palestinian uh, terrorist who's uh, labelled as a security prisoner imprisoned in Israeli jails, their family automatically gets a, um, uh, a stipend from the Palestinian Authority. So Smotrich doesn't want to allow either of these things to happen. And, and he said that basically, as long as I'm finance minister, not one shekel of these specific designated funds uh, will be transferred either to Gaza or to those families. There was reports that there was some kind of deal brokered by uh, the US and national security uh, advisor Jake Sullivan, whereby Israel would get to check the list of recipients of the money in Gaza, you know, to make sure it's not going to Hamas officials and so on. And and Smotrich said, you know, he just poured cold water on this and said, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, this is interesting. He said, "I, I told the prime minister this in no uncertain terms, and that I would be willing to pay the price if the government approves these transfers basically threatening that he would quit the coalition. So, you know, I have to bear in mind here that Netanyahu is really jammed in by his these far-right ultra-nationalist uh, ultra parties, um, religious Zionism and Otsmai Yehudit. Netanyahu theoretically could dump them in favour of Yeshatid, Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, and rule without the far-right parties. But Netanyahu knows that as soon as the war would, would finish, both Yeshatid uh, and uh, national unity, Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, which is currently in the government, they would they would quit immediately, and and Netanyahu would be left without a government and facing immediate elections, which is something he clearly does not want to uh, deal with right now. That is the situation where uh, Smotrich is is kind of running the table in that respect. Smotrich, on the one hand, sounds very sounds principled on some of these matters, but on the other hand, I have to remember that he is an ultra nationalist. He wants to annex the entire uh, West Bank. He's has stated himself in the past he wants to dismantle the Palestinian Authority because part of his party's ideology is to control uh, greater Israel as opposed to what he calls little Israel and to to assert uh, uh, Israeli control over all of all of the West Bank and to expand settlements and so on. So, you know, Smotrich is using this, you know, the, the, the problems we're facing right now as a way, I think, of, of advancing his long, long-standing policies. Okay, thanks for that, Jeremy. We're going to take another break. When we're back, uh, we will talk about conscripted soldiers in Gaza and how long they have been in there without getting home. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines massacre in Gaza, genocide perpetrated by Hamas, no, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or 
decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, Tal. So it has been 75 days of the war, and certain combat soldiers uh, spent up to seven weeks embedded in Gaza and had no communication directly with their families. Just as a to relate it to what happens in the U.S. Army, soldiers can do a six-month tour and obviously not see their families, and it could be abroad. But in Israel, it's highly unusual for a conscripted soldier not to come home in between missions. Um, there's never been a situation like this where soldiers were disconnected from their families for so long. So the question is, how do we explain this? Why? Why did this happen now? Right, Jessica, as you all know, Israel is a very small place. Uh, Gaza is just an hour away. And never, ever before in the history of all of our wars and operations, soldiers had to fight for, um, you know, such a lengthy time. I know it's um, it's un uncommon in other countries, but in Israel, this is this is this is what it was. I mean, and the longest war we had was uh, about forty something days. Uh, it wasn't even a war; it was an operation, and soldiers came, you know, in and out. Families usually talked to them over the phone, either you know, secured phones or any other way of communication. This time around, it's the first time we ever experienced such a lengthy stay um, in a war zone. And, um, you know, I'm speaking to you also as a mother of um, a combat officer who was in Gaza for seven weeks straight. And, you know, it's more than seven weeks because they, they, were, they haven't been home since October 7th, actually, some of them before that, but basically since October 7th. So it's a very, very lengthy time of period. And, and we, we noticed that the military was somewhat unprepared. Uh, I mean, everybody knew while, whilst they're going into the ground part of the war that they will stay a long time, but, you know, they couldn't tell in advance for how long. And they were definitely unprepared with respect to communication. And, um, you know, you know, when you don't have communication, they should work on some sort of postcards. The military was unprepared. And I'm telling you from a first parent account that the disconnection was taking its toll on the soldiers and on the parents. Um, this is uh, uncommon in Israel. Also, not all of the military was disconnected, but, you know, some infantry um, were, were uh, disconnected um, and parents can actually couldn't get any type of, you know, knowledge or inf information about their, their sons and daughters, because we also have daughters in. The criticism was mounting very heavily and very quickly, from parents, uh, civil society in Israel is very engaged. Uh, there were pieces on all, all over the Hebrew media about how certain units did really a poor job. 
Um, today, some of the soldiers are out. We will get more information as per their nutrition situation and our, as per their, um, you know, why there was no communication. And, and we will be able to come up with more, you know, um, understanding of the situation. But we, we, we definitely expect the criticism not to die because, you know, military, military has to check itself and correct whenever they are wrong. And they were, I mean... Hagari, our, you know, the military, the IDF spokesperson actually stood in front of the camera last night and said, we made grave mistake with respect to this, you know, specific part. So there is also, you know, there's already admission from the IDF. In a, in a sense, it sounds like it's a little bit a part of this general lack of preparedness. Uh, obviously, that is across the board in a very severe way uh, in terms of how the IDF was prepared or really not prepared to deal with this war that is now ongoing. There is a specific research coming actually out from the U.S. Army with respect to how to prevent uh, post-traumatic situation in, in soldiers. And obviously it's different because it's based on Iraq war and as we said earlier, six months of, of, of military tour. But having said that, the longest you are disconnecting a soldier from his you know, spouse or parents, the more likely they to go into post-traumas. So looking at it from the research and preparation side, the disconnection, I'm not even talking about the fact that they cannot go home and so on, but if they cannot go home, you will better make sure that you have better means of connection during that stay in order to prevent post-traumatic effect when everything is done. It's, it sounds really obvious, but, you know, the military doesn't, did not think, I mean, IDF did not think up until now that this is, you know, has to be taken into account. I mean, Israel's system of health provider doesn't want to carry more soldiers with post-traumatic. It's enough as it is what we have here as a post-traumatic situation for the entire population, obviously. So I hope that they will, you know, improve in the coming weeks and months because as we all know we are you know still going on for another lengthy either gaza or lebanon stay or operations right okay thanks tal and speaking of preparedness uh jeremy you wrote about the report issued by state controller matanyahu engelman who wrote about the government's lack of preparedness and lack of handling many civilian issues that arose on the home front in the first six weeks of the war. Really practical things, just civilians not having what they need in order to deal with the problems that arose during wartime. Give us a little bit of a sense of that. We've had obviously hundreds of thousands of people from the Gaza border region in the south and from the the northern Israel um, uh, fleeing uh, and actually being evacuated uh, by by the Israeli government because of the hostilities uh, in those regions. Um, and on top of that, obviously there's there's rocket fire. There's things like uh, um, uh, you know psychological trauma. Um, lots of different citizens facing lots of different problems as a result of the war. And what uh, the state controller Matanyahu Engelman uh, noted was that a lot of these a, a lot of the uh, these services which uh, citizens required to help deal with these problems uh, have been hard to access and a lot of people have even been unaware that they are entitled to different services and different government assistance. Shortly after the war began, the, the State Controller's Office set up a hotline to help deal with some of these issues and it got about 1,300 requests and of those 1,300 requests, 
uh, Engelman said that the, his office is actually the Public Complaints Commission, uh, which set up the hotline. It said that the Public Complaints Commission had been able to, to, to resolve 40% of those complaints just by providing the people with, uh, with, inf- with information um, and, with, and, and directing them to the relevant authorities. So um, one, other, one other major problem which he flagged was that a lot of the a lot of the uh, evacuees faced real financial difficulties um, in, in uh, people who are either self-employed or run small businesses because, first of all, they, they, they weren't able to, to work or, or do their jobs, run their businesses, so their income completely dry, dried up. And uh, at the same time, they had financial obligations. They have to pay the salaries of staff. They have to pay rent for, for their premises. They have to uh, pay supplies. And they were left in very difficult uh, financial circumstances, and it took a long time for uh, the relevant uh, payments from the government uh, to to cut uh, to you know this financial assistance from the government to come through. So he said, you know, this left hundreds of thousands of people basically kind of dependent and and, and in a, in a state of kind of poverty and and, and neediness. So um, he he also pointed out that Engelman also pointed out that some of the some of these problems which uh, citizens complained of were quite easily resolvable. Engelman said that the, the fact that the Public Complaints Commission was able to resolve large numbers of these of these complaints relatively easily, um, often within 24 hours, meant that the showed that the government was clearly not functioning properly uh, and the government ministries uh, and, and agencies needed to, prov- to, to make it more, more, their services more accessible and provide greater information uh, during time of you know really unprecedented uh, emergency uh, for the for the home front. And good thing we had those other civilian efforts that were filling in the gaps. Okay, so thank you both for being with me on today's daily briefing. Always good to see you. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. And thanks to all of you for listening to Times of Israel Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any comments, please drop us an email, podcast at timesofisrael.com, and feel free to recommend us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care and be well.